Welcome to the Retirement Pilot with Steve Hoover. Please discard unnecessary fees and expenses before going through security. Check your emergency fund at the gate and securely stow your well-conceived portfolio in the overhead bin. And when we reach cruising altitude, remember, you are now free to move about retirement. Hey, everybody. Welcome into another edition of the Retirement Pilot Podcast. Thanks so much for checking us out here on the program. Mark Killian alongside Steve Hoover. He is your retirement pilot. He's a financial coach at Wealth Partners Corporation, serving you here in the Kansas City area from his office in Overland Park. Make sure you find Steve and the team online at wealthpartnerskc.com. That's wealthpartnerskc.com. And of course, uh, make sure while you're there, you subscribe to the podcast. Check out the podcast so that you can uh, get past episodes and future episodes and all those good kinds of things. So give us a subscribe and uh, that way you can get your dose of Steve and I as we talk about investing, finance, and retirement. And of course, if you have questions or concerns, you hear something interesting on the program, you want to learn more, or you think, hey, I really need to address or talk about this, always check with a qualified professional like Steve. He's got more than 20 years experience and you can just reach out to him with those questions at 913-685-3207. That's 913-685-3207. Steve, my friend, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks, Mark. Uh, you've been a busy man. Been uh, traveling yes. all around and moving. Finally got that stuff all done, yeah? Yes. I want to get kind of back to normal life here for a little <laughs> bit. So, Well, did you enjoy your trip overseas and have a good time? Yeah, it was very nice. It was a nice, relaxing kind of let it go. Didn't really have to have the phone and, and uh, oh, aren't those to get the emails, best? but that was about all I needed. Aren't those the best, though, when you can start? Isn't it funny how you know we clamored for these phones and now we're so like we get so giddy when we get to turn them off <laughs> oh yeah it was great it's, it's amazing now let, let's let folks know that you did actually go to work some as well but while you were there you thought hey let's take a little longer and have a little vacation but you went over and did some additional education and learning as well with you know with the group that you're involved with so you can kind of keep up on uh, keep abreast of things right that's right yeah sure did so very cool. So got a little bit of education in there and then got a little bit of playtime in there as well afterwards. So that's always cool. And speaking of education, Steve, let me hit you with this one. Let's see. I want to get your thoughts here on the podcast today. You know, old Bernie wants to forgive about $1.6 of student loan debt. That's trillion, by the way, uh, with a T, so that nobody has any student loan debts at all. And Elizabeth Warren has also come out with her own plan that focuses a little bit more on lower and middle income families getting that loan forgiveness. Uh, it's about a third of Bernie's price tag, but Overall, what's your thoughts on basically absolving student debt? Good, bad, wondering what they're going to, you know, where they're going to pay for it? <laughs> well, first of all, I think it's a terrible idea. Okay. And the reason why I say that is, well, first of all, I understand that it can be a burden to people, but the the issue is people did take the loan out. They knew exactly what they were doing when they took that loan out. And, you know, if you're going to start forgiving loans like that, why don't you just forgive people with credit card debt? Right. Why don't you forgive people who have mortgage, car payment? My feeling is pretty, pretty tight. You know, you knew what you were doing when you took that money out. The other part, more financial part is we don't have the money. How are we going to pay $1.6 trillion? Where's that going to come from? Well, we're going to have to borrow it because we don't have it. Right. So we'll have to borrow it because people own bonds that are covering those loans. So that's a problem. We just don't have the money. And number two, Elizabeth Warren's same. We don't have the money. But on another note, what about people who took the loans out and actually paid them back? Mm -hmm. My daughter was one of those. She was like, I, I don't think I like this idea. I just paid mine off. I worked hard. 
Yeah. What about me? Who my son just graduated from University of Kansas. I paid for him to go for four years. Right. I paid for yep. my daughter to go to four years in college a few years back. Are they going to pay me back? Right. It's a slippery slope, so, isn't it? It's a real slippery slope. People knew what they were doing when they took the money out. You cannot get around it. You knew what you were doing. Nobody forced you to sign the documents. Nobody forced you to take the money. Pay it back. If that makes you have to take three jobs, then you take three jobs. You pay it back. So I have a really strong opinion on it. And I, I really just think that if you took the money, you need to pay it back. No, I agree with you. And, and I'll offer a counterpoint to both of their arguments that maybe we should be looking at the, the astronomical rise in college education costs. Maybe if we started focusing on that instead of trying to just forgive the money people are borrowing, that might help along the way, right? Because schools, I mean, it's gotten out of hand. The rate that the schools are going up is astronomical versus other sectors and things in life. I totally agree. And I don't absolve the universities or the institutions that are giving the money. Right. To people. Yeah. I was uh, I was reading something here recently and there was somebody who was on there saying, well, I've got two hundred thousand dollars of debt and I don't have a degree. And then you dig further and find out that they were in a philosophy major. Right. And right. it's like, well, you know, kind of never ending. Yeah. <laughs> you, and they wanted to go to a small private liberal arts school that cost them about 50 grand a year. That just doesn't make sense. And I don't think that the universities, they should have more counselors, if you will, or more advisors saying, if you're going to do this degree, don't take any loans out. Right. Don't, right. You know, right. as opposed to, oh, yeah, you need to do this and this and then fly. So it's not just the people who take the loans. It's, I think the universities I, have I agree. to. Yeah look at themselves too. I've heard this argument as well. As long as government continues to offer money to these schools, they're going to continue to raise these tuition prices because they can. And so maybe we need to take a look again at getting the cost of a good education back down to a place where someone can afford it and we wouldn't have so much student loan debt. But we'll have that conversation another time. We'll move on into our main topic this week. I just wanted to get your take on it, but I'm with you there. So we'll see how that all plays out as uh, things continue to go on in the, in the whole election process. But for now, since we're kind of talking about making an excuse, right? Giving somebody the excuse to just go ahead and pay that debt off. Let's talk about excuses we tend to make when we sometimes want to stick with maybe the wrong advisor for us. I'm not going to say a bad advisor, Steve. I'm going to say wrong because maybe they're doing a good job. Maybe it's not a stellar, outstanding job, but they're doing a good job, but it's just not the right fit. But for whatever reason, people tend to justify it. Us humans are very good at finding reasons to justify our actions and uh, saying, well, my portfolio, it, you know, it's done okay. Okay, over the last several years, not as good as it probably should have, considering how well the market's been. But you know, my advisor's a really nice guy; he's a great guy, and I just don't want to make the change. That seems crazy to me, but we hear that, don't we? We hear it all the time, and you know, and I totally understand it. You know, when you've had a relationship with somebody for a number of years, it's very difficult to break it, and especially when it's a financial advisor, it's very personal. We get to know everything. So I understand what they're talking about that. But sometimes I brought it up to people. And I said, now, you know, your children were first born. You took them to a pediatrician. Oh, yeah. I said, now they're in their teens. Do you still take them to a pediatrician? Well, no, we take them to our general internist or what have you. Well, it's the same with a financial advisor. Sometimes the financial advisor is good at getting you to one specific spot or time in your life. And then from that point forward, you need to be looking at somebody who's going to get you the other way. And I always use it example of they're good at accumulating your money or at least not losing that much of it, but they really don't know how are they going to generate income for you when you hit retirement? Because that's the only reason why you're saving money is to replace your paycheck. Right. And some are really good. Some are mediocre, as you said in here, you know, the nice, but, you know, not done that great, but did okay. They may not be very good at generating income. 
And I've, I've dealt with a lot of clients that have had to move money from somebody they've worked with for 15, 20 years because the person they're working with is more of, let's say, an accumulator. Right. That's all they look at. They're bent on trying to accumulate money, maybe not lose as much, but they're not very good at how are they going to generate income. And it's a totally different animal when you get into that situation. But again, it kind of goes back to, yeah, you hadn't done that bad, but you know, sometimes you need to mature out of one to another is how I kind of tell people. Yeah. Well, that's certainly one excuse we definitely hear on a regular basis. And that's what we're talking about here on the podcast. I've got a few general statements, generalized statements that we sometimes tend to hear when it comes to giving ourselves an excuse to not change advisors when we feel as though we probably should. Uh, How about something along the lines of, you know, Steve, I get confused when we get together. I'm, I'm not really sure what they're saying to me. I feel like they're kind of talking over my head. But you know, whatever the excuse is, right? He, he's again, he's a good person. We have a great conversations. We get along well. I feel, you know, our kids went to school, whatever the case is, right? It's, it's always something, but the core here is that you're not understanding or feeling confident in what they're saying to you after a meeting. I'm, that's definitely not a good place to be. That's worse than what we talked about. He's nice, not great returns and so on. Right. right. Um, what I always want people to do is understand why they own something. If they can't tell me why they own it, they shouldn't own it. And some advisors (laughs) do use the confusion to keep people around, use the lingo that we have in our industry or things like that. But it's your money. I always tell people, look, it's your money. You need to know what you own and why do you own it? And if they can't answer it plainly, then you definitely need to be finding somebody else. Nope, I would definitely agree with that one as well. And that's a shocking one sometimes. It does happen. And I think people do feel intimidated. They get a little overwhelmed by some of the jargon and whatnot. Well, he's an expert. He should know. Well, okay, there were a lot of experts in 2008, and people (laughs) lost half of their money. Right. Well, they knew a lot, but you don't want to be surprised that way. Yeah, yeah. Well, I got another one for you. This one, I think, is one that a lot of people do fall in the trap of, and it's that, uh, you know, I don't I don't necessarily get the attention that I would like to get from my advisor, calls returned, things of that nature, but I'm a generational person. They work with my dad, my parents, uh, and so they're probably taking care of me. That's another kind of assumption there. Yeah, there are different views on that. My view is, and as I said, I kind of take this the way my dad built his law practice. If they met with you and you're the one that put the plan together and you're the one that implemented the plan, you're the one that they met at a workshop, you're the one that they were referred to, you were the one doing it. You should be available by phone, by email, and you should return those calls or return the emails. I think in our industry, we try to think, Again, this is this is just the way I do it. This is not saying it's right or you know or anything of that nature. Right. This is the way I just like to do it. Is there are a lot of advisors who think their job is nothing more to get the account, then turn it over to the service person and never talk to the client that they you know worked with three, four times in meetings trying to get them to tra- transfer their account over. Then once they're done with it, they never see them again. It's truly a sales position, right? Is what you're saying, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm the the closer. I came in, I got the business. Now I'm turning it over to a another individual. Right. And you never talk to that advisor again unless they have more money to invest. And then they pop up and they're all over the place. And to me, and I've had a lot of clients who said, I just don't like that. I want to work with somebody. I want them to know who I am, know what's going on. Now, obviously, there are certain servicing things that, that people can do. But for the most part, you shouldn't just 
turn somebody over to an associate and never talk to them again unless there's money that's available to invest. And I've had a number of clients say, I've come with you because you answer my phone call, you send me an email, you get back to me, you know, you're available when we need to meet based on your calendar and things of that nature. Right, right. All due fairness to others, they probably do more revenue than I do. They probably do more business than I do. But Again, that's just the way I like to run mine. Well, and I think some of that you could could say, okay, you're making an excuse not to change advisors for whatever reason, but you can put some of that onus on yourself to say, what kind of expectations are you setting in those meetings to know how often you're going to hear from your advisor, to know how often you're going to work together. We do have to take, kind of to your point about the loans earlier, is we do have to take some responsibility and say, hey, in those meetings, listen, I'd like to talk with you X amount of times a year, you know, or whatever the case is. So setting some expectations goes a long way. It helps the advisor realize what you want from them as well, not just leaving it up to the advisor. So those are some things to think about when it comes to maybe are you sticking around with the, uh, the with an advisor for the wrong reason. Maybe it's not really truly about the performance or the value or the things you're getting for your retirement plan. It's some of these other things that uh, at the end of the day might sound nice and wonderful, but you know, is it collectively the right decision for you for the time of life that you're in? We're going to finish up the retirement pilot here with an email real fast that's come into the website a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we're going to get to this one from Tom. Tom's in Overland Park and he says, Steve, what kind of annual return should I be seeking on investments in retirement in this kind of environment? One, we can never predict returns. Yep. What I always tell people is you want consistent and reliable rates of return. So in other words, what that means is you don't want to be all over the place, meaning you make 15, 20% one year, lose 15, 20% the next year. The next year, make 10, 12%, lose 5, 10. You want to make sure that you're invested so that you have more consistency. So you may have more of a straighter line. You know, you do have the market's never going to go straight up. What you want to stop are the big peaks and valleys. So as long as you have consistent rates of return, anywhere from four and a half to six and a half percent is really what you need to be striving for. And it's not sexy. It's not exciting. You don't go to dinner parties and say, hey, my guy made me 25 percent this year. You know, my guy may be consistent. If you can consistently average anywhere in that range, you're going to have a much better, much more relaxed retirement. So don't fixate just on investment returns. Fixate more on consistent returns. All right. Well, there you go, Tom. So may not have the sex appeal, but it sure will feel good uh, with that uh, that consistency behind you there. So there you go. That's our podcast for this week on the program, The Retirement Pilot with Steve Hoover. As always, if you have some questions or concerns, reach out to Steve at 913-685-3207. That's 913-685-3207. Before you take action, always check with a professional like Steve. And don't forget to go to the website, wealthpartnerskc.com. That's wealthpartnerskc.com. And while you're there, go ahead and subscribe to to the podcast and you know we certainly would appreciate it share that with some uh, friends and whatnot on social media so they can enjoy the podcast as well and we'll see you next time here on the retirement pilot information is for illustrative purposes only and does not constitute tax, investment, or legal advice. Always consult with a qualified investment, legal, or tax professional before taking any action.